0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. I'm your host, Eric Sue, and today we have Scott Ruthfield from Rooster Park. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for asking. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, So yeah, you know, why don't you start off with giving us a little background on yourself and then uh, we'll go from there.
1: Sure, so uh, my background is, a computer sci- is in computer science. I started with a computer science degree. I came out, I was a program manager at Microsoft for almost five years. I left, I ran some business and technology teams at Amazon for about four years. Uh, left there, just wanted to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond, was the VP of engineering at a company called whitepages.com, which is you know a massive scale search engine for phone numbers and addresses. Was there for about a year and a half, Left, didn't really know what I was going to do, just knew I wasn't ready to work for anybody else's company, spent three months hanging out in a friend's office and wandering across coffee shops and talking to people, picked up a consulting gig as a VP of engineering and realized I really liked that kind of work. People I knew kept saying, hey, I heard you're consulting now. Can you build this thing for us? Can you come help us? And I just kind of kept saying yes. And that's kind of where Rooster Park came from.
0: Cool, great. That's the,
1: that's the that's how we got from here
0: to there. Yeah. So Rooster Park—that's a really interesting name. How did that? How did you come about, come up with that name?
1: So um, my wife and I are Jewish, and it's sort of Jewish tradition to not name your children before they're born, which in the modern world means you come up with a name, but you just don't tell your family. And we, so our older daughter before she was born, uh, our last name is Ruthfield, so we called her Little Rue. Um, which became The Rooster, which everyone in our family hated. Um, And then several months after she was born, we moved into a house that had a backyard, and my wife named The Backyard Rooster Park. And that's where the name came from. And, you know, so that's the fun story. And then the other interesting part is it's kind of a blank canvas, You can, you know, it ended up that we, I could have done kind of anything with it and people always like it and they remember it. And in my business, you know, you have sort of two kinds of consulting company names. You have super amalgamated corp Inc, which is, you know, two guys in the back of a van or you have, you know, Eric's consulting company, which basically means you're never going to grow. And I didn't know how big we were going to be,
0: but Mm. I wanted to have a name that allowed us to kind of be whatever we wanted. Cool. That, no, that's really smart, and I think that, that kind of. Um, I, I remember Ryan Carson from Treehouse said, you know, he changed the name from Think Vitamin to Treehouse because it has to p- pass like the bar test, and I think Rooster Park definitely passes the bar test. Yeah, it feels it. It. it nobody's embarrassed to work with us. Cool. Perfect. So you know how are um, you know how are revenues today? You know how many clients do you guys have, and who are like the big fish clients?
1: So um, revenues are good. We were public about our two thousand twelve numbers because we had to be for uh, the Puget Sound Business Journal and for some of the sort of top 100 whatevers in the Seattle area Mm -hmm. Um, so that we did about eight and a half million dollars in 2012 Mm -hmm. we did somewhere close to about a million dollars a month in 2013 and are pretty similar to that now Um, our clients are I would say about seventy percent big companies thirty percent medium to small companies big companies for us in town include uh, Amazon Disney and ESPN, which are the same owned company. Um, We've got one or two that won't let us name them, but you can probably guess if you look around. Um, Some small and medium-sized companies as well. Everyone from Moz, who I know has, of course, been on your show and has been a client of ours for many years, to product development companies like Synapse, to... Uh, lots of sort of mid-stage software organizations, which maybe have 10 to 50 engineers and need help here and there, to the startups that we've been helping incubate since they got going.
0: Got it. Okay, cool. And I always like to ask the question, you know, how many, you know, how'd you get your first, uh, you know, 100 users? But in this case, you know, you probably might not have 100 at the time. So let's just say, how'd you get the first, um, the first 20? (laughs) Sure. No,
1: it's true. I don't know what we'd do if we had 100 clients. Um... Our, I mean, the very short answer is word of mouth. The more specific one is, you know, that first client came, w- which was just me as an independent consultant, because someone introduced me to them and said, look, these guys are looking for a turn- someone who knows how to do an engineering turnaround. That was my first client. For a while, that was my only client. And then I picked up a second sort of CTO, VP engineering client, through a friend who heard that I might be doing this kind of stuff and thought maybe I'd want a full-time job. And then I picked up a third where people who'd connected me to that first engagement said, would you be a subcontractor for us and just go talk to this team and give them some architectural and organizational guidance. Um, and then the fourth one was, you know, when we started doing things that didn't weren't just my time being billed out, but starting to have other folks. Um, was when someone I knew who trusted me and who I'd worked together at Amazon was running the engineering department somewhere and said, Can you, you know, can we have you build this thing for us? Can you build this product from scratch? Mm. And then that flywheel just started to turn. The, the, the customer that got us from me having to work uh, full time in order to sustain my family as, an, as sort of a billable person and allowed us to have some other folks. In there was a large company in town that came to me and said, I trust you, we've worked together, um, I need to bring on some contractors, I don't understand how that works. And I knew enough from the folks I'd worked with to be able to sort of walk them through how to think about it, and then was really patient as we went through a six month big company corporate process for getting on board. And by the time we did that and we hired some people, I had replaced 30, 40% of my income with that, which was close enough to making the decision that I would stop being billable and start trying to build things. And after that, I mean, it's sort of cliche to say it's all word of mouth, but it pretty much has been. One of the interesting things that's happened is, you know, we've been around now since 2009, which means that a lot of the people who've depended on us have moved companies. And so virtually every new customer we brought on last year of any size was someone we had worked with before who had changed jobs, Um, which is a really cool virtuous cycle. right? It means that, one, we're doing a good job for people, but also we can depend on the folks who we've done a good job for who will see benefit when they go to their next place.
0: Got it. Yeah, and that's what a service business is all about. I mean, right. it's it's about retaining. That's that's the ultimate. Uh, that's the ultimate validator and word of mouth too. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I read an article uh, that in two thousand eleven and said you guys didn't lose one customer yet. So to date, how does that how does that that metric look now?
1: Um, I wouldn't say well. We've never lost a customer for um, underperformance. Mm-hmm. We've had customers stop hiring. I mean then that is kind of the world of the service and recruiting business, mm-hmm. right? You will have people who decide they don't need, you know, they don't need your services anymore because they're full or because right. they're on. Um, but so far, we haven't had anybody call us and say, "You don't deliver for us. We're going to go with another partner." Got it. So as long as we can keep
0: that, I feel good about what we're doing. Cool. So one hundred percent you guys did a good job. That's time. right. And and
1: part of that too is that sometimes we say, Hey, we're not the right fit for you. Mm-hmm. Right? What you need and what we do are not going to match. And there have been times where we've said sort of mutually, Hey, this is not gonna work in the way that we want. But none of those surprise phone calls where you're gone and it's your fault. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten those yet.
0: Got it. Okay. Do you, I mean, you know, aside from doing a kick-ass job, you know, what other special things do you guys do to kind of, you know, retain customers?
1: So I don't think, you know, frankly, I don't think we do anything besides making our customers happy to retain them. You know, we don't have a sales force. I am our entire sales force, and I also have to recruit and talk to engineers and, you know, keep the lights on and for a long time do all the accounting. Um, we've specialized in finding customers who did not require who have not required a lot of touch from us mm-hmm. who expect us to do a good job who know that we're going to reach out to them when we have a problem when they have a pr- they can reach out to us because they need help or we can reach out to them when we think we've got somebody great who can help them out and otherwise we're not going to bother them we don't you know we don't send flowers we don't call them 50 times a day nobody gets reminder phone calls that we exist from us. It's, if anything, it's the opposite. It's the, hey, I'm sorry, I've been out of touch for a few months. Um, I think we do a really good job. And then we target our services to people who we know that's what they care most about and what they're rewarded for. Uh, and that's the, that's the way I think about it. Um, most of our business partners are really engineering leaders. Some are HR departments, but usually we're dealing with people who don't want to get a lot of phone calls. Who don't want to have a lot of touch. Who want to know they can call me when they've got a need, um, and that I'm going to give them a yes or no. We can do this or we can't in 24 hours.
0: Got it. Okay. So you have the you have the recruiting side, and then you have the product development side. Um, do you have to do you have to do anything too special to like switch gears? Because it sounds like it's two different games.
1: Very much so, and and it's tricky, and I don't. It is not. There's sort, of a trend, there's sort of a process that we've gone through here. At the beginning, we had recruiting and product development, and they were both pretty small. Right, we would, we would have a couple of contractors working on site, and we'd have one or two projects going on. And what I realized pretty quickly was that we were much better at the contracting and placement side than we were at the projects. And the real reason we were better at it is that the project side needed more focus from a competent project manager who knew how to ship software. And I was the only one we had, and I was trying to start a business, and I couldn't afford to hire somebody who was only working part-time here and there. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to do a good job on the project, and it wasn't working. Our clients were happy, but they weren't going to chase to find us again. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't happy with the products we were delivering. And so to a large extent, a lot of that went on hold. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that our website looks so outdated on the project stuff is that it needs an update. But part of it is that we didn't do a lot of it for a while. And it's really in the last year where we've gone back and said, okay, we've we've, we've got the bandwidth to handle this. Right? I can bring on competent, talented project managers who are better than I am, and I can depend on them to ship products. I always knew I could find them great engineers, but great engineers aren't enough to build a product. They're just part of it. Mm-hmm. Now I can really put the ecosystem around them, and now we can do more of that work and do it happily and, and, and keep our – and keep our credibility mm-hmm. I'd say the last part is that what I realized is a lot of the staffing we were doing was really this just by a different name mm-hmm. so we would put a team of six people who owned an entire product on site at a client and they would do the entire thing you know they would talk to people there but since they were managed by the folks on site at the client um, it was it felt more like staffing to them but to us, I mean, we built the whole project. The project didn't exist if we weren't there. And so that realization that we were doing this all... We had had started
0: doing this again without
1: realizing it Mm -hmm.
0: has led us to go back towards doing more of that work. Got it. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think you have, like, the... You know, I would call it like a, like a dream service uh, business because it's, you know, if you're able to deliver all the time, and you know, clients aren't going to bug you that much, right? Whereas other people, when I hear from other service business owners, they're just like, oh, I'm getting so burnt out. Clients are complaining all the time. You know, there's a lot of finger pointing. Um, ideally, you know, you would just deliver as much value as you can and you've kind of gotten there. So, you know, congratulations on that. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. There cool. are, I mean, there are, you know, we have our days too, mm-hmm. right? We have our unhappy client days too. Everybody does. Yeah. Cool. So, um, you know, I guess we'll we'll kind of switch gears a little bit here. So, sure. you know, there's there's companies like, uh, you know, 37 Signals that used to be a service-based business have, that have moved completely into software. And then there's always, you know, I hear from tech entrepreneurs, they're just like, always like, oh, you know, service is so fickle. It's not scalable. We can't invest in this business model, things like that. So, you know, what do you have to say to people like that?
1: I mean, it's clear that I'm going against the grain, right? Like, I'm not um, – I'm not uh... – it's it's not like oh there's some magic to this that I found that makes it scale in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is I do think you have to pick. Right there are people who try to do both, who use consulting, who think that they're going to who are running a services company, but really want to be a product company. Mm -hmm. I don't mean, you know, I should be careful here. I don't mean people who are like, I'm bootstrapping through consulting so I can go build my product thing. Everyone kind of understands the risks there, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you'll get too many consulting hours, maybe you'll get too attached to the money and that that won't work for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean more the companies that say, We want like we provide services but we kinda do some products on the side and here they are and you can buy them too and and they're not really willing to spill spill spin them out and say this is something else for real and let it live on its own because they can't afford to do so. I I just I don't think you can do that effectively. You know, there's always the exceptions, but mm-hmm. by and large, I think you have to pick what you are. This is a services business. Mm-hmm. It is not going to become a product business tomorrow because I get some other great idea. If I want a product business, I'll have to go figure out some other way to do that, or I'll have to leave this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not going to be able to run two businesses perfectly all at the same time. Right, right? So that wasn't totally your question, but that's one really strong opinion I have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is definitely a different kind of scale to this business than there is to the product business. I don't make money while I sleep, Um, I mean, I make money in the hours that my other folks are working, but there is a level of, there's a different kind of hustle here, Mm -hmm. right? There is a dopamine drip to the every day there's a client who's happy or unhappy or a new one coming in, every day we're hiring somebody, every day somebody's contract Mm -hmm. goes. You have to love that sort of super messy human Mm -hmm. element of the service business. And then it's going to be a certain size, and that's the size it's going to be. There are, you know, there are service businesses that are uh, that are in the recruiting space that are a hundred or a thousand times our size, mm-hmm. right? That get sold for, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Who get passed around worldwide. The people who started those businesses are not confused by what they did, and are not worried that they don't scale in the same way that a base camp scales, mm-hmm. right? Like they get. That you know the the necessary navigation of humans requires lots of hands on stuff, but we've scaled, mm-hmm. right? I mean, when when we when I was doing all of the recruiting myself, we could hire like ten or twelve people. Now I have a team of a small team of recruiters and we can hire 50 or 60. Like that's scaling. It's not scaling in the, you know, millions of users per engineer way, but it's still scaling and we could add a few more and we'll hit other scaling limits. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the Paul Graham, and I probably get the words wrong, but when he talks about sort of the growth of Y Combinator, Mm -hmm. he says that, you know, each time we've done something, we've hit onto some scaling limit, we've solved that scaling limit, and we've gone to the next one. That is precisely how I think about this business. Mm -hmm. Each time, I think that we hit some kind of scaling limit, and then I figure out what are my methods for getting over this, and then we get over it, and then we go and grow again.
0: Got it. Cool. So I guess, you know... You kind of alluded to you know some roadblocks you faced you know growing the business, so can you kind of go over some of the roadblocks that you faced
1: sure so um, I'd say we've had we've had a handful of roadblocks over time um, getting customers past so getting customers past those first initial ones took a really long time. this business had the trough of sorrow as well right <laughs> where Um, You know, I finished up my billable hours at the end of 2010. I then spent the first half of 2011 um, talking to people, trying to build clients, working out of my house, um, trying to build business, and I remember like waking up at the beginning of June, so having been doing this for five months now, and saying, I've added 10% to my revenue from where I started in January. Like this is not actually working, right? Mm-hmm. Like I am stuck. And, what, and then sort of as I said that, all everything started to come together. All the conversations i had been having over the last six months started to come to fruition to the point where by November, we had too much work and I had to hire some recruiting help. And so we had this like, you know, it's it, we had this lag between when you have those first conversations and when people actually take your business, this is no surprise, right? Enterprise software has the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. We had this. We had our own version of that enterprise software lag, mm-hmm. um, where I was just trying to get those first customers to sort of come in. So that was sort of the first sort of business hurdle roadblock we hit. Um, and the next one we hit was people who really wanted my time, which I'm flattered and, re- and f- flattered by, and I think is great. And I am a finite resource, and I kept saying yes to things that took my time. And that wasn't fair to my recruiting team. And that wasn't smart for the long-term side of the business. And I've gotten much better at saying, here's how being really honest with our clients. Here's how I'm involved. Here's what I do. Um, I'm going to make sure your experiences are great, but I'm not going to be able to come on site for 20 hours a week and help fix the problems. And if you need someone... If you need a if you need an individual to hire to do that, and you don't want to trust a firm, I'm the wrong I'm the wrong person to do that. And let's know that together and and move forward. Um, so there was a little bit of a scaling limit there that we ran into. Um, we ran into uh, there's one other sort of roadblock that I just totally slipped my mind that I was going to talk about. Um, We've some of the challenging roadblocks in the sort of consulting business is the harmonics problem, where you have you know three really great job engineers and then they're booked, Mm -hmm. and someone calls you and says, "Can you help me?" And you're like, "I have all my people booked." And so we've always had a little bit of you know the stop and start to trying to sort of fill those to sort of keep those harmonics going, and those have been occasional roadblocks. Um, And we've had you know we've hit roadblocks where I. I'm really good at telling you that about all the things you should delegate and the things that you don't need to be responsible for. And like many entrepreneurs, I have a lot of trouble actually not doing those things. Um, it took me a while to have my recruiters start start doing some account management. Many of them are better at it than I am. I, they should be doing more of it. And then the most ridiculous thing is I was doing our own book my own books until five months ago. Wow. I had, you know, I, I don't have an accounting degree. I took one class in college. I learned QuickBooks for Mac, which no self-respecting accountant will actually use anyway. Mm-hmm. And I just was unwilling to spend the money and to trust someone else with our books. And literally it's just in the last two months. Where I finally feel like I don't have to know where every single dollar is, mm-hmm. um, you know and and we ran those first six months we you know we had traditional problems that companies that have payroll had, right? I had net sixty terms with clients mm. who would pay in sixty days when they were when I was lucky, and I was paying people on a payroll schedule and yep. I was borrowing money, you know, and it was it was two thousand nine, two thousand ten and and nobody was gonna give me any money. Mm-hmm. So I was borrowing against my four oh one K and I was seeing the red in QuickBooks. Yep. And I still have not forgotten mm-hmm. the red that was in QuickBooks. And it's taken me years to just kind of to hand that over. Um I think those are the main ones mm-hmm. that we've hit. I, and you know there's there's scaling limits. Like we're we're dealing with a scaling limit right now. Um, which is that we kind of know the size of our business in what we do in Seattle, specifically on the contract staffing side. Like, we kind of know what it is. It's not going to change dramatically by itself in the next 6 to 12 months. There are not, like, 10 amazingly large clients that desperately will want to work with us if we just found them. Like, Mm -hmm. we kind of know what it is. And so now it's... What are other avenues for expansion that might not involve hiring 50 more people in Seattle?
0: Ah, got it. That actually segues into one of my questions, too. So, you know, what are some of, some, uh, you know, you, you guys talked about growing through word of mouth, right? So what are some other ways you guys are kind of, you know, bringing in more clients right now?
1: So what we're trying to do now, and that's working and that I'm really excited about, is using the relationships we have to be able to offer services that are higher up the value chain. So one of the sort of epiphanies I had uh, about six months ago was I was hiring an incredible group of engineers. I was getting them to commit to Rooster Park as the place they wanted to work. And then I was putting them out on staff augmentation tasks and getting paid for them like a body shop would. So I was still making money. We were still a profitable organization, but... It, it is crazy that you know my amazingly talented engineers were getting paid the same for an H one B shop that's throwing as many people as they can at the wall um, and seeing what sticks. And so, for us, it's now about taking this. You know, every company likes to say their greatest asset is their people. We are legitimately in the people business, yep. and so saying how do I leverage this great talent and move us up the value chain, which is really about doing larger scale projects, building you know, full stack web applications and mobile applications and, and web infrastructure and web services for our customers. And so the way I'm getting those customers is I'm going to the people who trusted me as a contract engineering provider and saying, this is what we're doing now. You will have more of my time if you care about me, you will have more of my time because I need to spend a year making this business really successful. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're not abandoning everything else that we do. We're going to keep doing that. We're looking at this as a new revenue stream and new value provider to you. um, Who does this make sense for you or your big company or who else would you have me talk to? Who Who do you know needs this? And that's, that's where it comes from. We have really good relationships with other of other people that folks trust, so the Madrona Venture group is you know arguably Seattle's most influential VC firm. Um, we have really good relationships with people there because we're not super pitchy. We don't come in and say, "You have to use our services right now yeah. it's more like they trust us. If they someone talks to them and says we need a trusted firm to build web services infrastructure, they send them to us. Everybody knows that relationship is going to end happily whether we do the work or we don't. Got so, it. so it's still people, but it's more. It's more of us going out having a legitimate pitch deck. It used to be like white text on black PowerPoint slides. Like now, we have to be able to tell a little bit more of a story. Um, that shows a track record in building things, that walks people through the Rooster Park experience and ecosystem and then talks about their goals. And that was new for me. I'm not, a, I'm not a marketer by trade, and the thing I'm probably worst at is using visuals to tell a story. And so I'm trying to get better at it, and that's, that's, that will open up those doors for us.
0: Got it. Okay. Cool. And you know, one big thing that you guys do um, right here is... You know, the, the 10% of net income goes to technology startups. So can you tell us a little more about that?
1: Yes. So, um, I mean, it's sort of, there's not a lot, that's kind of it. This was yeah. a decision I made a couple of years ago, um, I probably partially to assuage my guilt about being in the services industry, mm-hmm. um, but also recognizing that, you know, we have an opportunity, like, we're successful enough to have an opportunity to help support companies that are in a growth mode. I am particularly passionate about that. I have limited time to sort of focus on it. Money for time is a legitimate trade-off for us. I'm proud of what happens and I believe, one, I believe we'll make money. Like I believe in investing in startups and while I'm not an amazing individual picker, um, I believe we're gonna do just fine if we do this. And also, I like the idea that I'm helping support an ecosystem in a way that I feel better about, right? There are are so many startups, like if you have a startup, and you get get profiled on GeekWire, you know, the Seattle's version of TechCrunch, or you get profiled on some other place, what's gonna happen is 15 recruiting companies are gonna call you and say, hey, that $2 million you just got from Sequoia, let's take some of that from you for your recruiting service. I don't wanna make those phone calls, I wanna find a different way to support them. With the success that we've had. So what that's looked like is a mix of individual investments in companies and investments in, which are generally like people I know and trust and will not feel badly if it fails that I didn't do enough diligence. Um, And then in people who run funds that we trust. So the 500 Startups is the one that we've been public about. We're in the second 500 Startups fund. Nice. we will be in another fund that I don't think has publicly announced their investors, uh-huh. but we've already committed. And in fact, I'm going to the bank to wire
0: the money when I walk out of this interview <laughs> um, to go do, to go do that. Got it. Okay. Cool. Wow. That's so. My original thinking was like, you guys just donated 10 percent away, and you don't, you you might not see it back. But now I, I'm understanding it more. Now it's it's investment, oh, good. right? I um, hope it's
1: yeah. It's definitely it's definitely an investment, got but. It like the investment in the right
0: stuff no this makes sense and i i think i might copy this actually no it's just (laughs) coming from a startup background too it just how could i how could you not give back right that's right and and get something back too. but anyway um so um you know final two questions here so what's uh what's one productivity hack that you can share with the audience
1: so uh, i have tried every dang task management Put things on calendars, tool. Like, I've tried all of these things. None of them work for me. I try them all for like somewhere between an hour and a month, and then I just give up. The one tool that I've absolutely stuck with is Sanebox. Uh, and before that, I used Follow Up. Sanebox gives me a couple of other things, but the only, fee- I mean, there's lots of other stuff it does. and Gmail is trying to compete with some of those feet, or however the competition is happening. The one thing that it does that nothing that I care about is I can BCC on any mail I send a time frame at SaneBox.com and the mail appears back in my inbox from wherever I am. So I can do this from my phone, which is a problem with boomerang. Cause in boomerang, I'm just using the, you know, I'm just using the built in iOS mail client. So I can't do that. Mm-hmm. If I, if I want to get back to you in a week or I just want to remember this conversation, I can BCC one week at SaneBox.com. I can BCC Saturday at 10 AM at SaneBox.com. It will be back in my inbox. Um, I have to be responsive all the time. Mm-hmm. Reliability is the only thing that matters in my business. This is the only way I know how to track it. If it's an unread mail in my inbox, I will eventually respond to it. And so that's, that's my productivity hack. You get same box or follow up. You BCC when you want that thing to appear again. You can use that for personal stuff. You can use it for professional stuff. But that
0: is, my, that is totally my tool. That is huge and very timely because I had one of my client success guys were just like, well, we need like boomerang for something else. So boom, this is it right here. Yeah, I, I use samebox. Didn't even know it had that feature, so thanks. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I actually had another question that just popped in my mind. So yeah. obviously you're doing so many things. So what does a typical you know, day-to-day look like for Scott? So what it should look
1: like and what it does look like can be, can tend to be pretty different. But what it does look like is a combination of probably three or four things. Um, I'm spending some time in client happiness, like finding new clients, talking to new clients, or, you know, having intake calls, figuring out if something makes sense, or talking to existing clients. I talk to every account that I. Sort of actively need to spend time on, I talk to at least once a week in a really scheduled way. Um, that's probably 30 40% of my time, probably should be more. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend uh, probably a third of my time working with my team of recruiters and account managers on how to solve individual problems, sometimes to do some coaching. Um, they tend to be very good independent and don't need a lot from me. Um, but. There are some standards and some ways that I think about things that I tend to be pretty obsessive about, and I spend time with them on those. Um, And also, there's a level of expertise that my employees like from me and that my clients expect, and so I do that. Um, The other third is, or whatever is left, is talking to engineers, Um, and that can be, hey, we want to place Eric in this job, and we need you to help sell him to hey, um, I'd like you to talk to my friend Eric. He's looking for something, and I have a good conversation with you, and then I write your name on my whiteboard, and maybe a year from now I have something that makes sense. Um, so it's some combination of those things. And then I try to exercise, which, you know, and I and I have a family, and when I go home, I want to be with my family, so I try to exercise some point during the business day, which matter, helps me a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when I go home, I'm, I'm there with my family until um, most of them are in bed, and my daughters are done yelling at me to put my phone away, and then I work however many hours that night need to be done.
0: Got it. Okay, cool. Final question here. Uh, so what's one must-read book for entrepreneurs?
1: So I saw, I, I, I saw some people's suggestions. I feel very old school with my suggestion, but there's a book... Because it's like almost y but there's a book called Bargaining for Advantage, okay. and it's um, and the sort of the ta- the subhead is something like negotiating for negotiating with reasonable people, and what it really is is it's about how do you think about the negotiations and conversations you have, what are the tools you can use, how do you evaluate people's motivations and understand what they're looking for. What is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement, and how are you going to make those decisions? Um, it's one of the books that really sort of cover both, like, here's how business works, and here's how the people relationships and figuring out what matters to people in sort of a human-readable form. So it's like, I think it's probably 10 years old or so. You look at Amazon, and most of the reviews are like, I had to read it in my MBA class. Um, <laughs> I sort of love it. I read it again a year ago. Um, just because like the stories sit in your brain and you do
0: things with them. Got it. No, I love it. I, lo- I love it because a lot of the a lot of recommendations sometimes they tend to be like more recent things. So I, I yeah, definitely yeah. love the old school stuff. Um, so Scott Ruthfield from from Rooster Park, you know, thanks so much for joining us. You know, we hope to have you on the show again sometime soon. Thanks. Great, Eric. This was great fun. Thanks right. so much.